All right, peeps, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, the genius will be answering all sorts of hot nonsense from YouTube. Lots of gems, lots of Jeet Kune donuts, lots of in theaters now. Enter the Dragon 2, the Daughters of Han. This time, it's personal. Let's get to it. And every day, I practice martial arts. Yo, Andrew, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. So, uh, so happy to have you now, I guess, as the next potential replacement for what used to be Dre. Uh, we tried Mikey Dean for a couple weeks, but um, the audience has spoken. They hate that accent, right? Yeah, I tried to get up here sooner. Right. You know, we had two episodes with Mikey, but they right. were tired of him by the first one. Yeah, but, no, uh, it was the, the reaction, yeah. first of all, to Dre being fired because of the Kanye incident. Uh, they were already pissed off about that, but there's nothing I could do about it. I mean, what Dre said was... Um, there's no coming back from that. Right. And then I'm like, okay, well, we got Mikey. Let's try it. And people hate that accent. I mean, the hate. It's un, It's ridiculous. I hate that accent. Yeah. I'm, I hate it too, but I think mean, I just hate it because of him. All right? <laughs> so we're trying you now. Hopefully this works. I don't know how people are going to feel about an Asian person talking about martial arts. All right, it, it, it's we're not that qualified. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say it's a little bit of a rarity, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be. Uh, yeah, it's going to be kind of. I odd. am from Ohio, though, so yeah, so know. that cancels sorry, it out, yeah, right? Yeah. Basically, that cancels out any Asianness <laughs> you might have had, right? Um, all right, so um, yeah, before we get started, just want to um, uh, you know welcome everyone to the new year. Although we've had a couple new episodes already in 2023, those were all shot last year this is actually the first episode oh, wow. uh, being shot in 2023 oh this is actually the um potentially the two-year anniversary episode 104 oh that might be that is yeah. this episode uh 104 uh yeah, yeah holy yeah. crap that makes this our two-year oh, wow. episode right yeah. and look at how things dre <laughs> has changed so much in that time I know. he's, he's arguably more handsome more handsome more articulate arguably. Yeah, more handsome, more articulate. Definitely more articulate. Taller, all right? Much more of a ladies' man, for sure. Oh, yeah. So, um, here, so you know, here we are. So our podcast has definitely changed a little bit over the two years. So uh, real quick reminder that if uh, anyone out there wants to support the Kung Fu Genius podcast, uh, the best way to support us is on Patreon. Uh, Patreon, uh, you know, for as little as $5 a month, you can get access to episodes early. Episodes generally come out on Monday, and I usually post the episodes on Friday or Saturday, depending on, you know, whether um, our editor gets it to me on time or early or late <laughs> yeah, or whatever. That guy is yeah, so unreliable. Yeah, and, and I just want to remind our uh, Patreons that really the best way to support us is on Patreon because uh, we don't earn any money from YouTube revenue because our editor, Andrew, um, <laughs> Only uh, only edits about eighty percent of my f bombs. Right? That's optimistic, freaking guy, right? <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> you two, stop with that shit, Jesus. Yeah, I guarantee you, he's not going to edit out his own f bomb. Right? He's, <laughs> but not because he didn't want to, just because he missed it, like all the other ones. Right? And 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 like Mikey Dean pointed out, um, Andrew, uh, you know, will edit the more subtle um, f bombs. But then when there's like a really pronounced one, that one will somehow slip past the radar. Well, you know, I, I've been spending too much time with Mikey and he's just totally filthied up my mind. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I see. So it's my fault. Always, that's right. Always. That's right. Uh, have you started saying ass with an R in it? <laughs> yes. All right. Yes. It's not ass. It's ass. Ass. Right. <laughs> okay. A few of my boys know, understand what I'm talking about. That's what's ladies up. too. So uh, the best way to support us is on Patreon for as little as $5. You get uh, episodes early. And uh, like I mentioned before, um, I have a uh, subscriber-only um, service on Instagram, what I call my Instagram OnlyFans, where about once a week I put a new uh, you know, Wing Chun tip or whatever up there. And if you support us on Patreon, I also post those Instagram uh, subscriber-only tips there. So if you're kind of like not sure whether to support me on Instagram or Patreon, go to Patreon. Uh, because for five bucks, you also get the Instagram thing. And then, of course, for higher levels of support, you get your... You know, either you get your name in the description, you get a private episode with me, yada, yada, yada. And we definitely appreciate the support because uh, we're more or less demonetized here on YouTube because the guy sitting across from me. So without any <laughs> further ado, uh, let's go ahead and get started. So here we go. What, what questions do you have for me? All right. So we got Thomas Macaluso from Vital Point Martial Arts. All right. Awesome. He says, if Bruce Lee had lived, do you think a sequel to Enter the Dragon would have been made? My understanding is the rule today is if a sequel can be made, uh, can still make profit, 
if it grosses half of what the original film made, the studio will make it. But was that the case back in 1970s? Uh, that's a great question. I'm not. Um, I'm not super well versed on, you know, the film business of the 1970s. I do know that they made uh, Enter the Dragon for a ridiculously minuscule budget. So uh, Warner Brothers was still, you know, despite Bruce's like intense, you know, you know, rocket to 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 fame in those yeah that year and a half, two years in Hong Kong. Um, they were still unwilling to, you know, totally um, fund Enter the Dragon because, you know, having an, an Asian actor as the uh, star of an American film by Warner Brothers was considered, and I, I feel is still considered a big risk by some major Hollywood studios, right? We're taking a huge risk right now. That's right. We're taking a huge risk. Yeah. Have, I'm, having, I'm taking a huge risk having an Asian co-host, okay? That's yeah, true. We're, we're going to yellow wash you later. That's right. This is going to be the least watched episode of uh, KFG after Bobby Samuels, right? You know, you know who we should get for our next co-host? Who? Scarlett Johansson. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yes. That would be the perfect thing to replace Andrew with, That's right. right. And she can, she, she can act as an Asian person. Absolutely. Right. Ghost in the Shell stars. Yes, That's yes, right. Yes. Um, yeah, and it'll do great. <laughs> all right. And bring lots of controversy. Um, so, so it was considered a risk despite Bruce Lee's stardom. You know, Bruce Lee had a very small name in the States because of uh, Green Hornet, uh, but in, you know, uh, long street appearances. But he wasn't like a household name at that time outside of the martial arts world. Like all the karate people knew who he was, but like he wasn't huge outside of that. So Warner Brothers considered it a bit of a risk. So uh, from what I understand, now it's been a while since I've read um, uh, like all the behind the scenes stuff about how they put Enter the Dragon together. So like, you know, if a couple of my numbers are off here a little bit, you'll excuse me because you know how the, the audience is. I say like, you know, it was 350,000 and then, you know, somebody Googles it and they go, actually it was 361,000, right? It's like, yeah, I'm, this is my head. You have Google when you watch this, okay? Um, so I, I believe that Warner Brothers wanted to make Enter the Dragon for about $700,000, which even in 1973, it was a pretty small budget. That was, even for them from what I read, was like a, like a TV budget, all right? Like an episode budget. And uh, they, uh, for a movie, especially a movie that's going to be shot internationally, this is, was a joke. I mean, under a million dollars, really a joke, all right? Because consider, that is the budget for the entire film, for everyone involved, including the stars and everyone, okay? So um, I was always curious what Bruce Lee actually got paid, you know, from that 750000 Like, what, uh, you know, obviously a, a certain sizable percentage of that should have been Bruce Lee's salary. Whether it was or not, I don't know. But you can kind of get a picture uh, that for Bruce Lee's big, huge juggernaut for Warner Brothers, he probably did not actually get paid that much. Um, so yeah, having said that, Warner Brothers, even though they were going to make the movie for 700000 750000 somewhere in that area, um, was reluctant to even put up all that money. So they... Uh, they said they would put up half and Raymond Chow would have to put up the other half. So it was essentially a co-production, which, by the way, is kind of funny. I, me I mentioned before the, uh, um, that Shaw Brothers kind of famously um, basically stole Warner Brothers' logo. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the Shaw Brothers' logo, it is, it is just a reconstituted Warner Brothers' logo. And even, you know, the Shaw Brothers themselves were very shrewd and very smart businessmen. Um, their Chinese surname is not Shaw, S-H-A-W, all right? I mean, what Cantonese name or Mandarin name have you ever seen spelled that way? Um, but they wanted to have a broader appeal, and they didn't want to have a name that was like difficult for Westerners to pronounce in case they were able to expand into other audiences. So they kind of whitewashed their Chinese name. And uh, in Cantonese, the name is Siu, and in Mandarin, it's Shao, but it's not Shaw. So they Scarlett Johansson. Their they Scarlett Johansson their name, and they did this very early on, even before starting the whole Shaw Brothers thing. So they essentially had a, a whitewashed version of their Chinese name. Because if you think about Shaw Brothers, um, of course we all associate this with kung fu films and and that. But like, what what Chinese name is Shaw? 
I don't really speak that much Chinese, so you could have fooled me. <laughs> wow. I, uh, I, I love, we have these moments where, uh, you know, when I'm teaching and then Andrew's in class and I'm like, you know, it's like this thing in Chinese and I'll say it to him and he'll just look at me like with this blank stare and I'm like, you know, you know? I just nod and pretend I so know. So I, be, I become the disapproving Chinese parents for, uh, for Andrew in terms of his ability to, to, to speak Chinese. Yeah. Well, you're not being maybe a little culturally insensitive just by assuming that he can speak Chinese because he's Asian. Yeah, definitely. You can, you could, you could, you could cancel the shit out of me for assuming that uh, a Chinese person can speak Chinese. All right. I'd just like to say also, Shaw is an incredibly English name. Yes. Yes. Such an English. Yeah. Name. So Shaw Brothers, you know, they kind of whitewash their own name, and then they take SB to look just like WB, and they create the same kind of shield style crest. And when you look at the Shaw Brothers logo and the Warner Brothers logo, I mean, it, you know, it's like the, one of those memes about like, um, uh, copy my homework and just change it a little bit, right? right. right? Okay, <laughs> and, and, that, and that's it, right? And then oddly enough, you know, you, you can imagine the Shaw Brothers, they, they, they're trying to do co-productions with Western film companies. And here you have Raymond Chow, who is a, an ex-employee of Shaw Brothers, um, and starts, you know, is this upstart that starts his own studio called Golden Harvest and essentially pawns all of the actors at Shaw Brothers whose uh, contracts were expiring. I mean, when Raymond Chow left Shaw Brothers, this was a huge, like, betrayal for Run Run Shaw because Run Run Shaw took um, Raymond Chow under his wing. Raymond Chow, um, you know, had gotten some degree, like, in communications or something to that effect in, in Shanghai, and uh, he became the PR guy for Shaw Brothers. And then eventually he got into the production stuff when he kind of complained that a couple of the films that Shaw's had made were maybe not really that good or the stories weren't really that good. And Run Run was like, well, what do you, you know, what's your idea? And then Raymond had some ideas for movies and things like that. And then Run Run Shaw gave him a chance to, I think, either produce a film or something. And he did, and it was a success. So he kind of then saw like, oh, this Raymond Chow guy uh, can do much more than PR. He also has some ideas when it comes to film. And supposedly the kind of the reason why Raymond Chow left Shaw Brothers is that uh, Run Run Shaw, um, uh, you know, who was married, um, also had a mistress. And his mistress, her name was Mona Fong. And Mona Fong, you know, his kind of young, hot mistress, he essentially promotes her to a p position above Raymond Chow. <laughs> and apparently Raymond Chow just, uh, you know, uh, that that was all he could stand, and he can't stand no more. <laughs> and he um, and he he left. And what he did was, is he start he knew which actors' uh, contracts were expiring, and he started to say like, "Hey, don't don't resign with Shaw. Come over here with me, like Jimmy Wang Yu and a bunch of other people." And then he basically just leaves and creates his, creates Golden Harvest, which he had already created before he left Shaw Brothers as kind of a production house to work in conjunction with Shaw Brothers. And then he was like, nah, screw you. I'm just going to make Shaw Brothers my own thing or make Golden Harvest my own thing. But the problem was that he could not find a star and he couldn't uh, he didn't really find a vehicle yet. So the first couple of years of Golden Harvest, he was struggling and he had no money coming in. A couple of films he made were not really that great. And he couldn't use his big star, Jimmy Wang Yu, because Run Run Shaw kept uh, Raymond Chow in the courts saying, like, you cannot use uh, Jimmy Wang Yu because, like, there's a contract dispute as to whether Jimmy Wang Yu really was a free agent or not. Right. And then essentially created this kind of ban that Jimmy Wang Yu could not make films in Hong Kong. And then eventually Raymond Chow sent him to Taiwan and then they would shoot movies over there. So Raymond Chow was very shrewd, like finding these ways to, to kind of get around Run Run Shaw and, and all this um, litigiousness. But he was struggling. And then, uh, you know, Run Run Shaw and the Shaw Brothers Studios, you know, it's a huge studio, huge just machine pumping out these films. And Raymond Chow was just really struggling. And then he found Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee was really the golden ticket. I mean, uh, say what you want, but, you know, it, it, it's, you, you cannot argue that Bruce Lee made Golden Harvest, right? And then, um, and then, you know, then we all know what happened. Basically, two years later, then suddenly the, the golden goose is dead, right? And then that put um, 
you know, Raymond Chow in another vacuum and then trying to, you know, repurpose Jackie Chan as a second coming of Bruce Lee and blah, blah, blah. And it really wasn't until they decided, oh, Jackie Chan should actually do comedy uh, in the late 70s after the success of uh, Snake and Eagle Shadow and Drunken Master that then they, they said, okay, now I think we finally think we know what to do with you, right? But um, you have to imagine that although they had some good films and they had Sammo Hung and stuff like that, like that period from 73 to let's just say 77 was a, was a bit of a rough period for, for Raymond Chow again after losing Bruce Lee. But shortly before Bruce Lee dies, he gets to do a co-production with Warner Brothers, all right? And I just think it's funny that the company that got to do a co-production with Warner Brothers was not the company that stole their logo. <laughs> but can you imagine if, if Run Run Shaw had been able to do, uh, and he may have, they, I know that uh, Shaw Brothers eventually did co-productions with American Studios, and they may have done one with Warner Brothers, but it's just the, the irony of like, the company that kind of stole the logo doing a film with the company that made the logo, right? But it was Raymond Chow that got to do the co-production with Warner Brothers. You can imagine how much this pissed off Run Run Shaw. Um, And, you know, Run Run Shaw, who lived, you know, into his hundreds um, and was wildly successful, even when he closed down Shaw Brothers Studios in the mid-'80s, he he still had TVB. I mean, essentially, TVB is like the BBC of Hong Kong. So so he just, like, like, he didn't stop making movies and then his empire fell. He just became the main media mogul of Hong Kong. Um, he already had TVB before that, and, and TVB is still in existence to this day. So Run Run Shaw, at no point in his career, was really hurting. I mean, after the Second World War, I mean, he just, he, he was always okay. Did he ever change the logo? Like, even when he collaborated with... No, because I think even um, uh, up until they st- they stopped making films officially, they had a couple little... small Because they still had the studio, because they were using the studio for the TVB shows. Mm-hmm. But they still... Um, I think they stopped making movies around 86, all right? Where, like, you know, those 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 films were kind of done. And, and you have to imagine, it's not just because... Um, you know, TV was more lucrative at that time, but it was because he was getting his ass kicked by Golden Harvest again. He got his ass kicked in the early 70s, and then he got his ass kicked in the 80s. Because Shaw Brothers kind of suffers from what a lot of uh, companies that did it first do. They're the first one to do it. They were, to a certain degree, innovative or good with the marketing, and then they um, they never improved. They got the formula, the formula was successful, and then they just kept it for too long. Because if you look at the movies done by Shaw Brothers in the early 80s, okay, um, where kung fu films were starting to fall out of favor, you know, the big kung fu boom really started to die around 83. You know, at that point, people wanted to see modern action movies because Jackie Chan over at Golden Harvest started to do things like Project A, which is now not a traditional kung fu movie. It's slightly more in a modern setting and there's stunts. Then come things like Police Story, right? And then it's like, okay, yeah, look at what you can do with martial arts and action in a modern setting. And then you compare that and then... Unbelievable. Can you come in a little louder next time, (laughs) all right? Unbelievable ex-employees, all right? So, uh, Yeah, I can't believe you showed your face. Yeah, I can't believe you showed your face around here, right? Uh, so Dre just walked in, ladies and gentlemen, all right? And he's it's going to be walking straight it's back gonna out. It's going to be awkward. First of all, he's been fired weeks ago. Second of all, he walks in and that door is super squeaky and he just opens it like, like Rick James walking all over your couch with his dirty boots, all right? So, um, where was I? I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks, Dre. Yeah, thanks, Dre. Totally, like, it totally, totally made me... Okay, so modern, when, you, when, when you look at the Shaw Brothers films from the early 80s, and you compare them to the Golden uh, Harvest films, all right? Jackie Chan was going to places like Spain on location, doing things like Wheels on Meals. And they're doing modern action movies on lo- like these beautiful foreign locations. They're doing stunts in Hong Kong, double-decker buses. It's like a much bigger, more grandiose production shot actually at locations in the wild, um, meaning in the city and elsewhere, right? And then you look at a Shaw film from that time, and it's still in a studio with a fake sky in the background. Well, and, and, and at some point, it's kind of like, you know, when, when you see like two guys sword fighting in what's clearly a shoebox of a room with a fake painted sky in the background, or Jackie Chan is du- jumping 
off of a double-decker bus. Um, I mean, of course, you know what the audiences are going to go for. Well, it seemed to me even the action sequences in Golden Harvest, like the choreography seemed smoother and more modern yes. by that period. Um, the, uh, you know, Shaw Brothers had their formula, which was you know, kind of a very traditional, almost very staccato way of doing uh, kung fu choreography. Like these very solid beats. And then with the, you know, with all those Taiwanese acrobats like uh, Lu, Lu Feng and Guok Choi or whatever, then there would be some acrobatic elements in there. But it was basically and they were the best at it. But Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, all those other guys on the Shaw, on the Golden Harvest side, they could do all that too. And they could also do it while jumping over something and while and making it funny. And and although there were a few comedies on the Shaw Brothers side uh, with action by people like Lao Ka Leung, it wasn't really their thing. So they kind of started to become a little stale and a little dated. And you can all you can also see a bit of the unraveling of Shaw Brothers towards the end, where they kind of know that they're losing out and uh, they, they're kind of in their final throws and they start throwing everything in the kitchen sink out there. And sometimes it worked, like a Five Elemental Ninja. Um, I love that movie. Yeah, where it's just like, ultra, yeah. like they're trying to keep up with the ninja trend and it's ultra violent. And then there are just other films where it's like they're just they're just going overboard and they're just, they're just reaching at this point, right? It was kind of sad. But when you look at for Lau Ka Leung's last real film for Shaw Brothers, which was Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, that's a masterpiece. But that was also like his swan song. That was also like the end. Um, and, but you also see that that film is also quite different from his other films. And he... Um, uh, you know, I mean, partially because Alexander Fusheng died while filming it, and that was like a devastating blow to director Lau and to everyone else. But it was like the rare Lau Kar Leung film that was like angry and ultra violent at the end. Um, and and so you kind of see like that was kind of how Shaw Brothers was winding down. It was like getting crazy and stuff like that. Meanwhile, Golden Harvest was just going, and they have all these all these modern action movies and all sorts of crazy stuff, right? So. So anyway, back to this question, because I literally didn't address it at all. Um, you have uh, Raymond Chow putting up half for Enter the Dragon and Golden Bro uh, 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 Warner Brothers putting up half. So, you know, Raymond Chow put up 300 and something thousand dollars and Warner Brothers put up that much. They shot it, I believe, with one or two cameras and it wasn't, sh it's not union. So they didn't have to pay anyone union fees. This was non-SAG. Um, it was shot in Hong Kong, so they didn't have union rules. They didn't have any of that stuff. So it was very cheap for them to make. And uh, supposedly the cameraman, the one cameraman, um, he was also not union. He was from the States. And while he was on the airplane to Hong Kong to shoot Enter the Dragon, he was reading the manual on how to use the camera <laughs> that he would film uh, Enter the Dragon with. So that really shows you that despite the fact that it was a Warner Brothers film, it was done on a shoestring budget and not with the best people. Well, you know, incredible products can be made by, I mean, I read the manual to edit every time I edit yeah. this. So. Right, yeah. <laughs> pretty much, yes. Did All you right. just compare your editing to incredible products? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a little, a little bit full of yourself there, aren't you? Well, a now bit. you're the co-host. It's like, ooh, look at me. I'm fabulous. I'm fabulous. I read manuals because I don't know how stuff works, even though I use it every week. He has to reread the manual every week. How do you turn this thing on? Where's the Google Drive on Editing this? Editing for dummies. Yes. Um, so, uh, so I believe um, I, I might be wrong here, all right, and I'm sure our... Um, Google using audience will be able to correct me, all right? Um, but I believe that Enter the Dragon has been the single most profitable film Warner Brothers ever made. Um, for sure, they've made movies since that maybe grossed more. But Warner Brothers paid 300 something thousand dollars for Enter the Dragon. And when Enter the Dragon then later came on VHS and then later with all the various re-releases, um, they, can you imagine how much money they made from that thing? From this, because it's an iconic film. I believe it was number two in 1973. B What's that noise? Uh, yeah, who's who's making noise? <laughs> Yo, Dre. We literally hear everything that's going on in there. All right. 
he's, it's like he's got it out for us. I know. Yeah, it's you, like he, you do, you're doing this on purpose because yeah, he fired you. Yeah, I'm like listening in the headphones. I'm like, what is that? He's totally Rick James in us right now. It's okay. On the recording, it's not super loud, but it's really annoying. Yeah, it's really loud, my headphones. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so it was like the number two film of 73 behind The Exorcist. So it grossed all this money. They paid almost nothing for it. And because it's non-SAG, those actors didn't get residuals. So, so Warner Brothers isn't paying shit out on that movie. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a money factory, you know? <laughs> So um, I think then from a business perspective, they would, have, um, they, they would have probably made a sequel because the movie was so big, they had no idea people would love it, and then I think that was probably a no-brainer. Although they may, I mean, it's, it, it's a great thought experiment, but I, I have no idea if that was really the way they looked at those things back then. They might have just thought, let's just make another movie with Bruce Lee that's kind of similar Right, uh, rather than making a sequel. Now there has been ideas bandied about uh, for a sequel for Enter the Dragon um, for from a few different people. Well, the, our commenter was saying uh, maybe Han's daughters. Yes, get that's the, the 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 Han's daughters thing, okay. which I I think would actually have made a great sequel because if you think about it, you know when you watch Enter the Dragon, Han has all these daughters, right, and they're all these martial art ass kickers, right? Like when uh, they bring. Um, Roper in there, and he's like, oh, and he, he thinks that these are like Han's women or something. Like he's like, oh, no, these are all my daughters, right? And then he goes to shake the one girl's hand, and then she like Aikido flips him or whatever, right? <laughs> well, think about it. They did not die in Enter the Dragon, all right? And now um, Bruce Lee basically wiped out their father's entire like heroin empire and killed their father. <laughs> so now you have the daughters of Han want revenge on Lee, Right? And um, I think that would be an amazing story because also, if, if, if my memory doesn't fail me, I don't think Bruce Lee saw the daughters of Han. I don't think there's a scene where he's there with them. So he may not be able to recognize them or know who they are. And so they want revenge on Bruce for killing their daddy, right? And I think that that would be a pretty amazing sequel, right? There's like, there's a lot you could do there. I mean, where it would go or, you know, how you would create a, a, a fully compelling narrative with that is, you know, obviously would be up to the writers, but I think there's definitely something there. The Daughters of Han, right? Enter the Dragon 2, right? The Daughters of Han, right? This time, it's personal, right? That would be awesome. Okay, yeah, I actually think that yeah. that would be really, really cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, great question, man. What, you, what else you got for me? Hey, everyone, just want to let you know Wing Chun Illustrated is now offering a paperback edition through Amazon, reaching a larger global market. And no, they're not ditching the glossy magazine edition through MagCloud. You can now simply choose the version of this magazine you prefer and the one with the cheapest shipping wherever you live. Order your copy of Wing Chun Illustrated today across 12 Amazon marketplaces with free shipping for Prime members. Go and check that out. Uh, all right, we got Mike Shang. He has a comment. Awesome. He says, original Hong Kun was a short bridge and narrow stance pre-Wang Fei Hong. Uh, yeah, so um, I, I cannot speak like with absolute authority on that. Um, um, wow. You're, look, you, you're trying to ingratiate yourself by just trying to slip into shot over here, like mm. cleaning the teardrop bag. Wow. You know. Wow. Like, we, have, we have a lot of... Trey, Trey, don't we have an order of protection against this guy? We uh, should have done after what you pulled. Yeah, after with, what you pulled with a on. Seriously. All right, you should beep that out. That'll demonetize this episode. <laughs> um, all right. Those those two names will demonetize this episode worse than any f ever would. Yeah. Right? With Jose at the Wing Chun clan. That's right. Yeah, I know. Ho Jose with his like. Totally ripping off the Wu Tang Clan's trademark all the time, right? This is this is like this episode here is gonna get us sued to pieces. Yeah, yeah. So um, there are older forms of Hong Kun, in particular, like five pattern Hong Kun, which are essentially non Wei Wong Fei Hong lineages. It's like you have to imagine when it comes to Hong Kun, 
um, Wong Feihong, although Wong Feihong is much more analogous to our Liang Zhan. Our, you know, Liang Zhan was like the, the Wing Chun Kunji Wong, the king of Wing Chun, right? And he's the Sikong of uh, uh, Yip Man and stuff, right? So you can almost, if you really want to draw a comparison, uh, the closest thing is you imagine that Wong Feihong uh, is like, our Liang Zhan is like, uh, is like Wong Feihong for Hong Kun. And although Lam Sai Wing was a student of Wong Feihong, but in terms of the legacy, Yip Man is almost like Lam Sai Wing in terms of like bringing it to Hong Kong and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, although people could argue, you know, the, the, the other, other way around, or, you know, we could say that Yip Man was uh, more of our Wong Feihong or whatever, but like either way, um, Wong Feihong and his descendants are essentially like Yip Man and his Wing Chun. They're the most famous flavor of Hong Kun, all right? Um, so most of the time when people talk about Hong Kun or Hong Ka, um, they are uh, thinking about Wong Feihong. The same way when you, or Wong Feihong's lineage or line. The same way when you think Wing Chun, people reflexively think of Yip Man and his line. Although there are lines of Wing Chun outside of Yip Man, just as there are lines of Hong Kun outside of Wong Feihong, right? So it's just that, you know, because of history and accidents of fate, you know, the Wong Feihong lineage um, becomes the more prominent, more famous, more known one, and the Yip Man version of Wing Chun becomes the more famous and known version of that style. So um, there are other styles of, of Hong Kun, uh, like I said, in particular, five pattern Hong Kun, which are older, um, and when you look at their movements, they are to a certain degree closer to what you would identify as something that's more Wing Chun-like. And I think the, the difficult thing for people to understand when it comes to these different styles is that, you know, when I started learning Chinese martial arts and I started to get into this stuff, I looked at these things as like these distinct families of martial arts that are like totally different. You know, like uh, that they have almost nothing to do with each other and that they're very, even though everything comes from Shaolin, but like even when I was, by the time I was a teenager, I already knew that that was, that it's a little bit of a myth, a little bit of bullshit, right? A little bit of, you know, part what people have seen on movies and part what they've been told by their Sifu, who's not a historian themselves. And also there's a lot of wishful thinking with that stuff. It's very romantic to think that our martial arts come from this Buddhist temple where they were all fighting monks and, you know, the Qing dynasty comes in and fights them and it's this big war and then these five elders escape out the back and then they go out and they create all these. It's very romantic. The problem is there's not a single shred of evidence that it's true. Um, and when I say that, Kung Fu people get their panties in a twist because uh, how can you say this isn't true? This is the history according to... According to who? My Sifu told me it was true. Yeah, of course. Yeah, my Sifu said it's true. My Sifu's a swell guy. No, I mean, that guy over there yeah. told me that. Yeah, I know. But he doesn't know anything about history. All right? <laughs> doesn't okay. know anything about anything. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, the problem is that um, why do people believe in it? Well, because it's the story they grew up with. It's what their Sifu told them. And their Sifu's a swell guy. And so they're going to believe it. But it's the same thing like any religions. Like, why do you believe this religion is true? Because you grew up with it. All right? So you believe in it just as much as the kid who grew up in India and is a Hindu because he grew up with that. So you're, you're in the same boat, all right? The, yours is no better than the other. It's just the one that you grew up with. And people fight to the death defending these things when there's no shred of evidence that it's true. And when it comes to the historicity of claims like the Shaolin Temple or the burning of the Shaolin Temple or the five elders, the thing you always have to remember is when I say there's no evidence to support it, people go, oh, what? but everyone talks about that and all the... Hey, I'm not the one making the claim, all right? <laughs> what you have to understand is it's not my burden to disprove that the Shaolin Temple exists, didn't exist or to disprove that these martial arts come from Shaolin. If you're making a claim that the whole of Chinese martial arts descended from one Buddhist, all right? Remember Buddha said, if your enemy cuts off your arm, you are not to harbor even a tiny bit of hate or anger towards them. A religion that has that as its precept, all right, doesn't seem to be uh, the uh, the perfect like place for things like fighting arts to grow, all right. When Buddha is almost excessively nonviolent, all right, 
But, uh, but martial arts were developed at a Buddhist temple. Okay, so those are a number of claims you need to unpack. And when someone wants to make a claim that the Shaolin Temple is the birthplace of all Chinese martial arts, um, and all Chinese martial arts sprang from this one or two Buddhist temples in China, that's a claim. That's a claim about history. It's not a claim of what you like to have happened. It's an actual claim about history. And when you make a claim, you need to substantiate it. The fact that your teacher told you, well, how does your teacher know? Oh, his teacher told him. All right. And we all know how reliable hearsay and secondhand stories are. All right. I, I want you to sit here and tell me a story as accurately as possible that you know that vividly happened to you in 2004. All right. right. Just tell me right now. Exactly. Okay. And, and that is you first person, your experience. And you can go back and you can remember basic ideas of what happened. You could probably recall more or less. But if we went back in a time machine and actually went there, you would realize, oh, right. I totally forgot about this. How many times do you go back and look at old photos and you're like, oh man, I totally even forgot I knew this guy yeah. or I totally forgot that I had done this, right? Yet we are, we are almost commanded to believe without a shred of doubt the entire history of Chinese martial arts that was spread basically mouth to just orally for generation to generation to generation and we have to accept it uncritically lest we be branded an upstart or a rebel. Right. All right. All I'm saying is if you want to claim that the whole of Chinese martial arts came from one or two Buddhist temples, all right, then you need to substantiate that claim. And facts are not my Sifu told me. That is not a fact. That is not that does not that doesn't rise to the standard of evidence in court. It's called hearsay and it doesn't work. So that's always the, the, the problem with these things, is that people forget that the burden of proof is not, on, is not on me saying the Shaolin Temple doesn't exist. The burden of proof is on you to substantiate its existence, right? Besides the fact that Chinese martial arts actually predate the Shaolin Temple, and they also predate Buddhism. So the idea that, you know, China has a huge border. They, for a very long time, had to protect this very large border against invading forces. So they had martial arts and horseback weapons, like weapons that you use while on horseback and, you know, uh, battlefield weapons and all this stuff. And many of those weapons are weapons that are now called Shaolin weapons. And they are from a time, the Bronze Age, that predates even Buddhism. So if it predates Buddhism, it certainly predates the Shaolin Temple. So how do you then say this is a Shaolin weapon? And, uh, you know, uh, for the thousands of years of Chinese history, where they're warring between other factions in China and trying to keep people out. They didn't come up on the idea that you can punch and kick and slash people with weapons until gentle Buddhists, meek and mild, came to China. And then suddenly they go, oh, I can clobber the shit out of someone's head with my fist. Thank you, Buddha. For thousands of years, we didn't realize we can impose violence on other people. <laughs> Praise Buddha for bringing this idea to us. It is patently absurd, all right? So, the Hongjun that predates <laughs> uh, Wong Feihong's uh, um, style or brand of Hongjun, all right? And I would argue that, you know, he, it, so uh, Mike Shang uh, in his comment essentially says that the lower stance, deeper stance kind of Hongjun is a Wong Feihong thing, and I would argue it's probably more... Um, not even Lam Sai Wing, Wong Feng is probably even more Lam Zhou. Lam Zhou being the more recent grandmaster of Hong Kun because Lam Zhou, although he was a student of Lam Sai Wing, Lam Zhou also had some opera training when he was younger. And when you look at Lam Zhou's uh, version of Hong Kun versus some of the pictures we've seen of uh, Lam Sai Wing, uh, you could kind of see that um, Lam Zhou is lower and also when, when he does his, you know, Zhong Tao or the opening of the forms, it, the, the, the way he stands and his posture and everything like that is slightly influenced from opera. And so I believe like the lower stances and the emphasis on that stuff actually comes more from Lam Zhou's operatic background. And, uh, but interestingly enough, a very good friend of mine, uh, Mak Chi Kong, Mak Sifu, who's from the Lam Zhou, Lam Sai Wing lineage, um, when, when he explains Hong Kun, he says, look, in the forms, they have very low stances, all right? Not every form, but many of their forms. The movements are generally bigger and wider. But he says, but in fighting, the stance is narrow 
and the movements are shorter. So the way he explains it is that the bigger movements in the form are for training range of motion and for learning to get your entire body behind a movement. For example, you have a, one hand goes, uh, goes in this direction, the other hand goes in this direction. So you see these really big movements in Hongkun, right? Will you actually fight with such a big movement? Most likely not, unless maybe a multiple attacker scenario. But what you're learning here is you're learning, for example, and I'm, just, I'm giving a, a generic example, not a specific example. You're learning kind of a push-pull mechanism with the whole body. And then what do you start doing? You start taking that and you go shorter and shorter and shorter. And you take this big, large push-pull mechanism from a Hongkun form and you apply it in this shorter action in fighting. So there's also a dichotomy, from what I understand, in those martial arts between the bigger, wider movements and the deeper stances being a kind of physical conditioning training to make the shorter, narrow stance, shorter explosive versions of those movements in fighting easier. So it's kind of more like a physical culture, a physical training of developing a broad spectrum of body mechanics and movements that are going to be applied shorter and shorter. When, when Maxivu applies Hongkun, he uses the Zakma, the narrow stance, and Dunkyu, short bridges. So when you actually see him in his Hongkun fighting stance, he almost looks like a Wing Chun guy. And um, the way he told me was that in Hongkun, you have all of this physical training you have to do first, the forms, the stances, the weapons, the big movements, the part two-man sets. And then later, as you start to learn how to fight with these things, it becomes the stances narrower, the hands are shorter, and it becomes more and more like, it looks more and more like Wing Chun. And he says in Wing Chun, so it's almost like they kind of come to the same conclusion. Narrow stance, simultaneous actions, short bridge movements. But he says the difference in Wing Chun is they just teach you that right away. Mm. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, but then uh, to be fair, what is the disadvantage we have in Wing Chun with that? Uh, we teach the students how to fight right away without the physical conditioning. Now, yes, in very traditional Wing Chun, you would do the Siunam Tao form first. You would stay in that stance for a long time, develop the legs, the breathing, the posture, the mind, the intent. Yes, in very, very traditionally taught Wing Chun. Yeah, you would, there is a physical conditioning aspect by standing and doing the Siunam Tao stance for six months to a year, just hitting the wall bag. You are also doing that to a certain degree. But truthfully, even in Yip Man's time, you, while you may have spent a considerable amount of time doing the Siunam Tao, you also kind of got into it. You start doing single arm Chi Sao, you learn Pak Ta, Lap Ta, all these things, and then Chi Sao chain punching, and then you kind of start fighting with it. So it's almost like Hong Kun focuses on developing the body very strongly as a precursor to learning how to fight. And Wing Chun's like, we'll teach you how to fight, and you'll build your strength over time through the fighting practice, all right? So there, it's two different takes which come to a very similar conclusion. Um, but I do always respect the fact that the Hongkun guys generally tend to be pretty strong and pretty fit. Um, the question is whether all of those guys eventually do get to the point where they really learn how to use it instead of just like they learn the Hongkun forms and then basically their sparring looks like kickboxing or do they actually learn how to apply that stuff? And with Wing Chun people, they have, you know, Wing Chun people have really intelligent techniques and intelligent ways of interacting, but sometimes the physical conditioning is lacking in Wing Chun. And this is exacerbated, in my opinion, by the selling points of, oh, in Wing Chun, we don't kick high, so you don't need to be flexible. And Wing Chun doesn't fight force on force, so you don't need to be strong. While those things might be true as a selling point, uh, I also feel that they're an excuse for Wing Chun people to say, well, you can kind of be lazy and be good at Wing Chun. And that is a a bald-faced lie. You can't be lazy and be good at anything, all right? So if you're not local to NYC, one of the easiest ways for you to improve your Wing Chun training is to train online with me. Online private training is tailored toward the individual and geared towards serious practitioners who want to improve their skills or knowledge base. 
I offer two private lesson subscriptions, twice a month and four times a month. Kung Fu Genius listeners use the code KFG online to get one online consultation lesson free with the purchase of any subscription. That code and the links are in the description below. Online private training is a convenient way for you to ask any of the questions you've had about application, form, theory, or even how to teach. Bring a partner to train with you online at absolutely no extra cost. I'll show you how to train with your partner online. Again, use the code KFG online to get a free consultation lesson with the purchase of any online subscription. Links are in the description below and I'll see you online. All right, what else you got? We got time for one more? Or? Yeah, we're only 46 minutes. We're only 45 minutes, minutes oh, okay, in. okay. Wow, such a professional. And by professional, I mean not professional. What? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we got Steven Richardson. Hello, KFG. Do you have a recommendation of a book written by Bruce Lee detailing the technical explanations of the techniques he presents, like a technical how-to book? Thanks. Mm, well, that's a good question. I mean, um, Bruce Lee was kind of famously not into doing that, all right? This is the problem of having the way of no way, the method of no method, the I don't have to teach you shit because there is nothing to teach, so pay me and I will teach you nothing, all right? This is the problem with these hyper-philosophical martial arts, right? Like, you know, Jeet Kundo is a philosophical framework for martial arts, I think is great, you know, the finding the root cause of your ignorance and, you know, trying to explore the problem in depth and not being bound by dogma and all these things, I think, are worthwhile and necessary pursuits for any martial artist to really ascend the higher levels. But it's a, in my opinion, not a great framework for teaching a beginner. A beginner who doesn't know how to punch or kick, you can't come in and go, all right, I want you to free your mind. I want you to flow with me. Yeah, with what? They don't even have physical, they don't have any physical movement, all right? How are you going to, how are you going to tell someone to adapt like an echo and respond like a shadow when they literally cannot step and punch, all right? So the problem is that really interesting sounding philosophical platitudes might make sense to someone who's been doing martial arts for a long time. But let's not forget that when a beginner comes in, a beginner wants to learn how to defend themselves. They want to learn how to properly respond to being attacked. So whether you like it or not, in your very lofty philosophical perch, you have to teach a beginner how to punch, how to step, how to do this, how to do that. You have to go through a technical repertoire, regardless of whatever your style is. You can't just begin with, oh, let's flow and let's go back and forth. I know some people like that extremely unstructured way of training, but also, yeah, a completely unstructured way of training for a beginner is a very quick way to get them very philosophically and physically confused about a whole bunch of things very quickly, all right? Um, you know, you have to go through basics, and martial arts is all about really solid fundamentals. And let's not forget all the philosophy all the philosophy aside of Jeet Kune Do, Bruce Lee had really solid fundamentals. His footwork, his closing gap skills, his lead hand, his basic paxaos and, and lapsaos and sidekicks and everything like that, and his physical conditioning. He had those things. So he could, he could then preoccupy himself with the idea of becoming a more adaptable, a more open-minded, philosophical, you know, having a more philosophical expression of martial arts because he had basics. But you can't say that to a beginner. But the problem is that over time, Bruce Lee seemed to just kind of want to be that way with everyone. Okay, I'm not, you know, like think of his Longstreet episode, yeah. you know, I, there's nothing for me to teach. Okay, so why am I here? All right. I can only help you find that, you know, the cause of your own ignorance. How do I throw a punch? You know what I mean? Like, I, I get it. Like, as a martial arts nerd, I mean, when I hear Bruce Lee and I hear that all that philo philosophical stuff, you know, I also get goosebumps. It's great. But I also know that if someone walks into my school off the street, I cannot be like, there's nothing for me to teach. Especially a blind man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything is inside you. All right. Okay. So why am I here? All right. Well, that's a good philosophical question. All right. Um, at some point, the student should be able to leave and do their own thing. The question is, you know, Many people think they can do that way before they really can. The Dunning-Kruger effect. The beginners often overestimate their competence because they're so bad at what they do, they cannot even realize how bad they actually are. So there's this thing that a lot of beginners glom onto that kind of philosophy because it almost gives them a, 
um, get out of doing basics free card. Oh no, this is my expression. This is how I flow. Dude, you can't even step. All right, dude, you're walking into punches. You're not there yet. You need to put in the time to talk like Bruce Lee. You can't do that right from the beginning. There's this uh, Instagrammer, me and Mike Sifu have been looking at. Uh oh. And he just, all of his uh, posts are just videos of him hitting this bag hanging on a tree and it looks so sloppy. Yeah. But yeah. It, all the comments are trashing him. He's like, oh, I'm just creating my own style. Yeah. He's self taught. Yeah. But, yeah. but you know, there's kind of a weird thing in martial arts with that kind of thing because they think that they're being very lofty and philosophical like oh it's not about stop doing my own thing here whatever but what you realize is that there's a very deep almost narcissism to that because if i create my own style and i'm just doing my own thing then i i'm trying to put myself in a position where you can't criticize me because you can't criticize no because this is my own style bro i'm developing this okay even though there's so much information out there, literature, there's a whole body of knowledge in terms of how to throw a punch, whether you want to do it in a Wing Chun way or a karate way or a boxing way. There are people who've been doing this for many, many years and they have learned systems and then improved them and trained them. And there's, you know, if you want to learn how to throw a proper Wing Chun punch, you find a Wing Chun Sifu that can show you how to do it. You want to learn how to throw a proper jab. You don't need to reinvent the wheel on these things. So what you can do is you can learn a proper way of doing whatever style it is you want to do. And you get really, really good at that. You develop those fundamentals. You understand it. You internalize it. And then once you've internalized this, then, then you can say, okay, now I'm going to try to develop something on my own because this is now sitting on a, a foundation of experience and a solid body of knowledge. But there are people that they want to be the guru, they want to be the sifu, they want to be the person that cannot be assailed by, by anything they do. And so they create their own style. And, uh, and I'm not saying that that was the case with Bruce Lee or other people who've done it. I mean like this kind of person you follow on Instagram, right? Uh, you can't attack me because this is my own style, but it's my own experience. It's, you know, to put it in a very 2023 way, this is my truth, okay? <laughs> well, well, the thing is, well, the thing is, there's a difference between a personal truth and um, objective truth, okay? Is that? The obje yeah, the objective <laughs> truth is that if you maybe tried to hit someone that way, it would not have the desired effect. Or if you tried to hit someone that way, you could be easily countered. Your personal truth is that this is... This is your expression of martial arts. Fine. The problem is when you take your personal truth and you then go over that tipping point to making a claim about what this is or what you can do with it. Because then you put yourself in the room of being able to be criticized by other people who have learned more standard ways of doing things. All right? If it's your own personal truth, your own personal belief, and you keep it as such then no one is going to take an issue with it. It's when you just go over that, that, that tipping point and you start making a claim about what this is or this being a new established style. Okay, now you have to, now it has to complete, uh, compete in the marketplace of ideas. Now it's no longer just a personal belief because now you're making a claim about what it is, right? So that's kind of like the issue with this, like, you know, with Bruce Lee and being at this state of, his development where it's about the philosophical expression of martial arts because he already has 12 years of fundamentals trained. Um, and then because he's kind of in that mindset, especially in the last few years of his life, he, seems less, he seemed less interested in teaching the mechanics of the straight lead or the straight kick. Um, I think he kind of felt like his students could do that. All right? They could teach those things. He didn't want to teach those things. He wants to talk about the philosophy or whatever, right? So I think it would be very unlikely that he would have really created a how-to book. I think the closest thing we have to a Bruce Lee step-by-step -step how-to book is the um, Bruce Lee's Fighting Method uh, books, which is a series of four books, kind of small books, published by Uehara Publications, which was a project that he was working on. It was a book project, and I think it was supposed to be some kind of Jeet Kune Do manual or whatever, and he shot all the photos for it and then never finished it, and they basically finished it posthumously using some of his notes and his other writings, and there are four books, and they're really good because this is like, has lots of, there's one like, um, which is like basics, like fundamentals, and then there's another one that's like self-defense techniques, and then there is... Um, 
Uh, there is another one. I think it's like I think it's skill in techniques, and then there's like an advanced one. I forget. I haven't. I have. I have all four. Of them. I have like five versions of all of them. I haven't read them in a long time. Um, and there you can see Bruce Lee showing like you know step by step a bunch of things there, but it doesn't show like a lot of cheese out. It doesn't show a super amount of technical situations, but it shows some. So I think that Bruce Lee's fighting method books are probably the closest thing you have to it. But then again, Bruce Lee was also someone who was constantly evolving his way of doing things. So you also have to understand that that would be a crystallization of what Bruce Lee did, I don't know, 1967, 1968. I don't know what year those photos were shot. But that would be like where he was then, which may not be the same place he was in 73, right before he, he died and certainly would not have been the same place he would have been if he were still alive today or whatever. So um, I don't know. It, it, it's interesting to watch. I don't know the value of that in terms of teaching yourself. I think it's it's a problem for Jeet Kune Do people. Um, Jesse Glover, the late Jesse Glover, Bruce Lee's first student, he kind of put it in a way that I really appreciate. You know, um, in the early days of Bruce Lee's teaching in the you know the Seattle era, it was a lot closer to Wing Chun, and it was basically just shut the enemy down really quick. You know, um, very similar to how a lot of Wing Chun presents itself. You're here, whatever your stance, the guy tries to throw a punch at you or come at you and you're going to close the gap very aggressively to, you know, uh, get within that danger zone and you're going to overwhelm them with chain punches and kicks and stuff like that. A very aggressive, simple mechanism of swarming your opponent with either one really solid shot, like a falling step, putting your body weight behind it, or doing some kind of overwhelm kind of thing. So it's, it's something like that's the basic mechanism, just kind of pouncing on them like a cat, taking them out with one shot or taking them out with a bunch of quick shots with lots of forward pressure. And Jesse Glover said, like, this is something that's teachable. You can teach this to someone. Um, but Jesse Glover's complaint when he started to see what Bruce Lee was doing later on, he's like, well, it looks like, you know, it looks like in the later years he was experimenting with things that nowadays we would really call like kickboxing. All right. The idea is like, OK, it's not about self-defense where I'm trying to swarm this guy and stop this guy really quickly or have a quick action. It's about, um, you know, having having the better the better martial arts system. OK, you're fighting a karate guy who's trying to get, you know, get hits in on you. How do you? stop this guy from being able to do it. You have footwork, use a straight lead, you have these kind of ideas, and then, okay, what if the guy's a boxer? What if the guy's like this? And now it's about using this kind of dynamic framework, which is something, you know, even though he used, he relied heavily on a fencing framework, but when you just kind of look at it in a very basic way, it's essentially a, a kind of early form of kickboxing, all right? Using, it's like kickboxing at distance with, with some uh, fencing ideas, getting close and doing some Wing Chun-like stuff, right? Um, and Jesse Glover's complaint is that he was like, that is a very physical expression of martial arts where um, we're not talking about a mechanism of self-defense. Because if you get attacked on the street, um, you cannot solely rely on f athleticism, all right? Um, because you very well may get attacked by someone who is in better shape than you, which of course is gonna make it more difficult. I mean, I, I'm all for being in shape all the time. Uh, and not being one of these lazy Wing Chun people that relies on how awesome their bong turn is and unloading power. Um, yeah, you should you should have a little spring in your step. You should have a little, you know, pep in your punch and because you train, and also you should just be healthy anyway. Um, but Jesse Glover's complaint was that what Bruce Lee was doing later on was much more physical and required higher level of attributes. So if you wanted to do, in Jesse Glover's view, the Jeet Kune Do that Bruce Lee did after he left Seattle, you need to be essentially more of an athlete. You need to be someone with quick reactions and reflexes and certain attributes. Otherwise, according to Jesse Glover, he kind of gives the impression that he feels it's kind of a pipe dream if you're going to try to do Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do because th therein lies the rub. It's Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do. And when I see um, a lot of new school Jeet Kune Do guys, whether they're original Jeet Kune Do or Jeet Kune Do concepts. Um, there are some really, really good athletes in both of those expressions. There are some guys on the Jeet Kune Do concept side that I really um, respect in terms of how they move. I really like Burton Richardson. I, I love the way he does stuff. I, I think, you know, Paul Vunak, who's a bit of a maniac, I think Paul Vunak was pretty awesome as a JKD guy, you know, very explosive. But you look at him, he's also very physical and very athletic. 
And then there are guys on the original uh, JKD side, um, you know, like people who've learned from Ted Wong and stuff like that, that like the way they move, like, yeah, they got it. They, they're they people who put their time into my good friend, uh, Vincent Benitez, and he moves very well as a Jeet Kune Do guy. And you go, yeah, they put in the time, they have the physical attributes. But then for every one of those guys, you have 10 Jeet Kune Donuts, okay? <laughs> uh, and, um, you, you know, you, you have guys kind of waddling around, trying to move like Bruce Lee without the physical attributes, without the physical conditioning. And what you end up seeing is a martial arts version of a Bruce Bloitation film. You're not looking at someone who has a personal expression of Jeet Kune Do. You look at someone who's out of shape trying to imitate Bruce Lee. And that would be like someone who is a slower heavyweight boxer trying to imitate Floyd Mayweather. And it's not going to work. You need to find someone who moves like you with the same body type, who does it at a high level, and figure out your way of doing that because certain body types have limitations, whether you want to believe it or not. And I see a lot of like out of shape Jeet Kune Do guys, which first of all is totally out of, um, you know, Bruce Lee was a huge like physical fitness and health nut, you know, and all about like you have to, your body has to be prepared to do this physical combat. And you look at guys who are like crazy out of shape. Hey, even my old podcast partner, Big Sean, who was morbidly obese, admittedly so, would always tell me in private that, yeah, he knows this is his huge limitation in Jeet Kune Do because he cannot move that way. But what his um, specialty was, was... Uh, an, ex an, uh, an extreme understanding of timing and distance. He knows he doesn't have the speed to go in there and do something, but he knows that he can, by virtue of reading footwork and movements, time someone on the way in because he's not gonna be able to do it faster, he can just do it smarter. But his other advantage was, is he had a mind for Jeet Kune Do. If you wanted to know about timing, distance, and rhythm, um, as expressed through Bruce Lee's notes and stuff like that. There was no one better than Sean. I mean, like we would do our Dudes of Kung Fu podcast for like an hour and then we would stop the recording and then I'd be like, hey man, there was a great conversation and you know, like, oh, dude's on a funny question we got here. And then like, we would go back and forth for like another half hour. Like one of my biggest regrets about my time with Big Sean is that I didn't record those half hour conversations I would have with him after the podcast, because then he would start to like explain to me about distance and timing and rhythm and how if you have this type of opponent who's approaching you this way, you need to like set up traps and stuff like this, this way. So like his mind for Jeet Kune Do and his understanding of timing, distance and rhythm, in my opinion, rivals even some of the best kickboxing coaches that I've talked to. Sean, he knew it. He had it. And so while he wasn't like physically capable of moving like Bruce Lee, he figured out a way to adapt Jeet Kune Do to his body, but he was also, outside of that, perhaps one of the best coaches of Jeet Kune Do, hands down. But then I see a bunch of other guys, they don't have Big Sean's mind and understanding of Bruce Lee's notes and timing and distance and rhythm in Jeet Kune Do. They don't have, like you listen to them explain Jeet Kune Do and you go like, no, no, no. They're loosely paraphrasing some of the superficial stuff, but they, they don't have the core of it. And then you watch them do stuff and you go, this is a bad Bruce Lee impression by someone who's out of shape. I don't like, in, in, you know, it, there's too many Jeetkin donuts out there. Uh, do we have time for another one real quick? We have time for one more. All right. So let me scroll here. Jeetkin donuts. You like this? Uh oh, oh got to unlock scrolling. the screen. Okay, scrolling. All, All right. right. Next up we have... Dreisen. Dreisen? Oh, come on. What? What's the problem? Shocker. It's, I, uh, I, I keep trying to fire everyone who uh, comes up with these Dreisen questions. And every time I replace them, they say, now, how does Dreisen get in the comments? I know, right? I, I, look. Someone put it, put it here. Have I don't you know. how he's pointing to the screen. Yeah. What is this? It's like a thing. You know, I, like everyone who has finds a Dreisen question somehow online, suddenly they're pointing. They're like, no, it's right here in a way that they never do with the normal questions that are actually written there. Yeah, it's like scrolling. I mean, I'm looking and I'm seeing writing. It's, it's there. It's just, yeah. yeah, but it's like, I don't believe it. Yeah, I'm looking at the tablet. I see a big picture of Peppa Pig on there. I don't see <laughs> a Dreisen question. I mean, I don't know how to use Google Docs, so someone had to put it there. Or, but find, it wasn't or find it for that matter. <laughs> so, Our editor, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so Dreisen, he's asking a uh, hypothetical. Shocker. 
<laughs> and he, so he's saying, uh, imagine one day you're walking through New York. Do I have to? Oh, you're going to. This is happening. <laughs> okay. You know, you're walking on 6th Ave or whatever. Uh, we don't have streets back in Ohio. but and, You don't even have roads. That's <laughs> true. And you see these manhole covers, and suddenly you come across one manhole cover, and there's all these weird things coming in and out of it. There's smoke coming out of it. And coming, coming in and back. out of the manhole cover? Well, the manhole cover's gone on this one. This okay. One yeah. But there's smoke coming out of it, and then smoke getting sucked back in. There's it's, pigeons and ping pong balls flying out of this thing. Which is actually a normal thing you would see in New York. <laughs> <laughs> ping pong balls. I don't know. I have a feeling that we talked about that last night. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, of course, because you see that all the time here. Coming in and out of something. And yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and suddenly a big tornado flies out of the manhole cover, and the ghost of Yip Man swirls out of this manhole cover. Holy cow. What wow, that has to do with the ping pongs and the other stuff is a little <laughs> bit beyond sounds me. Sounds a bit big trouble in little China. Yeah, you it's know a mystery. I mean? yeah. It's a mystery. <laughs> and he says, uh, Sifu Richter, you, obviously the way you teach my modified Wing Chun is very uh, knowledgeable. Modified Wing Chun. Oh, by the Chun. way, when, when he said Sifu Richter, did he say it in, in, in the Stephen Seagal voice? <laughs> yes. Sifu Richter. Sifu Richter. <laughs> so, you know, obviously you you very knowledgeable the way you teach this modified Wing Chun. I have one question for you, however. How do you think Bruce Lee died? Oh, my God. I thought he was going to ask me about Amin Bostepe versus William Chung. Oh, my God. How did Bruce Lee die? Let me see. Cocaine. And that's all I got to say about that. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Kung Fu Genius. As always, don't forget to subscribe to the Kung Fu Genius, like this episode. And if you have any questions for me to answer on a future episode, go ahead and write them in the comments below. And as always, I'll see you guys next time. Word is I'm a Kung Fu genius. Technique speaks for me, not lineage. Forget Jet Li, cause I'm the one. Many call me Sifu, but to you I'm Seagung. And I produce masters. You surpass us. Your Kung Fu stiffer than corpse and caskets. City Wing Chung is the house I built. Violate the gate and your blood gets spilt. Alex Richter, always the victor. Let's go ahead and get started. So what's going on here, guys? Yeah, you're going to probably have to edit this out <laughs> That's already. Okay. Holy cow. Yeah, because um, yeah, I don't know. Where is it? I don't know. What happened? Uh, I couldn't find Google Docs on here. Oh, you couldn't find that awesome thing right there for oh, Google Docs. Oh, okay. Right? And then it's, the, yeah, it's, 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 in, it's in Google Drive. The Google <laughs> Doc is in Google Drive. Our editor, ladies and gentlemen. To right? be fair, I didn't where, know. Where do you find Google the Google Docs, Docs um, in the Google Drive? Where is that? It, it's like right there at the bottom. All right, peeps, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, the genius will be answering all sorts of hot nonsense from YouTube. Lots of gens. Shit. Gens? Oh, gens. Gens. <laughs> I thought you were going to do it. Oh, oh, There's not a single gen in this episode. <laughs> all right, peeps, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, the genius will be answering all sorts of hot nonsense from YouTube. <laughs> did Sorry, I say I something? No, you oh, didn't. I figured it. I'd just keep you on your Oh, my God, you he's trying to f*** with you, right? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're keeping it. That's that it. That's We're the leaving one. that in. That was right. amazing. Right.